That was my fault. Sorry, Jess. <laughs> um, thank you, Bonnie and Linda, for wonderful playing as always. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 22. If you do not have your Bibles, it will be behind me on the screen. Um, all right, so thus far in Genesis, uh, we just dealt with one of the more scary, I guess in some ways, or tragic in some ways, um, but also not tragic, but wonderful stories of uh, the sacrificing of Isaac by Abraham. Um, and now we're kind of left wondering, okay, what's going to happen next with this family? What's, gonna, what's God going to do now? And so, again, we kind of get this sense of, okay, all is well and good. So uh, before we get into chapter 23, though, we do have to get to the end of chapter 22, which has a short genealogy. So let's go ahead and read these verses, uh, chapter 22, 20 through 24. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlop, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tahash, and Mekah. So before we go to chapter 23, we do have this seemingly minor genealogy concerning Abraham's brother Nahor. As it turns out, he has had 12 sons, 8 through his wife Milcah and 4 through Ramah, um, who was his concubine. Now, a concubine had many of the responsibilities of a wife, um, though not as many legal rights. So technically, they were almost like a secondary wife, as sorrowful as that is for our ears. That was how it was back then. As such, the real focus of this is verse 23 when we learn Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Rebekah will eventually be the wife of Isaac. Some might wonder why on earth Rebekah is first mentioned here, as it is, uh, there might be a number of reasons for this. First, Isaac's story here follows Ishmael's story, if you noticed. Um, as you remember, Ishmael was sent out, almost died, God interceded, and then we find out about his wife, who was, a, who was an Egyptian. Um, in this sense, Isaac's story is paralleled up to learning about his wife. Now we have a mere hint concerning his wife, Rebekah. And then the second thing is it might also be a way of formalizing the promise. It will be through Isaac that many descendants will come. Thus, by looking forward to Rebekah, it hints at the coming blessing being fulfilled. All right, now we're going to do chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of gods among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold uh, from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, Ephron the son of Zahor, uh, Zohar, that he might give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of this field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. All right. 
At this point in the story, many years later, we learn of Sarah's death. We learn of her age when she died, as well as the place which is Hebron in Canaan. We also learn of Abraham's response, which was to go into the tent where her body lay. He mourned and wept over her. For all of his faults and all the times he was seemingly willing to uh, save his own skin while sacrificing her, he does still love her. He has affection toward her. The scene quickly changes from the inside of the tent to the Hittites. It begins with a proposal from Abraham. He recognizes that he is still a sojourner and a foreigner among them. As such, he does not really own any land, merely has a well which he can use. Thus, he asks for property for the purpose of a burial site. The goal is to have a permanent place which is to be his, in particular for burial purposes. Thus, that he might bury his dad out of my sight implies this. Interestingly enough, while Abraham was an honest view of himself in the land currently, the Hittites respond rather graciously. We notice how they say, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God. They are cordial in their response. They recognize God is with Abraham. Likewise, they recognize his status and how greatly blessed he is by God. And because of this, they are willing to let him choose of the choicest tombs to bury Abraham's deceased. So far, it seems so good, but there's a simple caveat. They did not say that Abraham could buy any land, and as such, while he would be able to bury his dead among their own, he still does not have any land. We notice then Abraham's response by bowing to them, showing respect in response to their kindness. He responds, however, by recognizing their affirmation, but asking if he can buy the land from Ephron, uh, specifically the land that, was, that has the cave of Machpelah. As such, Abraham is not only seeking a place to bury his dead, he requests to buy the land itself to be his and his descendants now forever. We also notice Abraham specifically mentions that it is a little piece of the land at the end of the property. So he's not asking for the whole of the land, just that little bit that has the cave. Now we find the response uh, with verses 10 through 16. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all those who went into the gate of the city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I might bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Talk about haggling. That's what this is. And it's interesting. Uh, Now it is Ephron's response. We notice that his response is out loud, indicating that all who were at the gate would be able to hear his thoughts. That this was all happening at the gate also reminds us of that many of these kinds of transactions back then were made at the gate. Um, Indeed, the same thing occurred with Boaz and Ruth. Remember when we talked about Ruth and when Boaz sought to marry Ruth, it required him to go to the gate where all the elders were. As such, Ephron's response here is like the Hittites. He's cordial. Uh, He responds that he will not have Abraham buy the cave. Instead, he will simply give him the land and the cave to Abraham. 
From there, Ephron says that he is welcome to bury his dead in the cave. Now, some might say that this is a great offer. Um, but the problem arises that if Ephron merely gives the land to Abraham, it leaves much uncertainty. It might require some compensation later on from Abraham or, or from his descendants. Thus, it would not really belong to Abraham. Instead, he would more of a serf than a landowner. And if that landowner decides something else, then it is possible that the obligation could far away the benefits or Ephron could just kick him out. Um, and Abraham, he recognizes this. He again bows down before the people in subjection and in graciousness. He responds with saying he does not want to use the land. He wants to own the land. He is willing to pay for it, but it requires Ephron to simply name a price. Ephron responds to Abraham in an interesting way. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Um, There's a sense of, again, a haggle happening. And it is almost, in a way despite the circumstances, comical thing to hear both Abraham and Ephron discuss this from in front of the gate. Indeed, to quote one of the commentators I read, the bargain which is here made between Ephron and Abraham is to this very day repeated in that country. In Damascus, when a purchaser makes a lower offer than can be ex- accepted, he is answered, what is it a matter of money between us? Take it for nothing. Friend, as a present from me, don't feel under any kind of constraint. Um, Dietrich had a similar experience in Hebron. In our excursion, we had noticed a fine gray horse belonging to uh, the quarantine inspector. Mr. Blaine, my fellow traveler, had appeared to wish to buy the animal and now made its appearance in our tents. We inquired the price, and our astonishment may be conceived when the dirty Turk offered us the animal as a present. Mr. Blaine declared that he by no means intended to take it as a present when the Turk replied, What then are five purses, 33 pounds sterling to thee? Similar experiences take place every day in Egypt. People still talk, basically, like Abraham and Ephron did 4,000 years ago. I thought that was comical. I'm a nerd. Anyway, um, as it is, Ephron finally does give an offer for the land. So it is, Abraham weighed out the silver and gave it to Ephron. In front of everyone, Abraham made the transaction. Ephron agreed to it. Thus, for the first time in Abraham's narrative, he owns a piece of land of Canaan. Um, And that's significant. And now we come to the final few verses of the chapter. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for burying place for the Hittites, or by the Hittites. So these final verses further describe the land which Abraham had bought from Ephron. Uh, We notice it was to the east of Mamre. This is actually a special spot for Abraham and for Sarah. Abraham spent a decent amount of time in Mamre. um, And it was at Mamre Sarah had learned that she was first going to give birth to Isaac. Thus, in this way, Abraham takes possession of his very first piece of land, a piece which held significance for both Abraham and Sarah. As it is, Sarah is then placed within the tomb. 
the first matriarch, the first of the family, to be buried in the land of promise. All right, so there are two points of all these verses that we just went over. The first deals with the end of chapter 22, which deals with the genealogy of Milcah, which leads to Rebekah, who will be Isaac's wife. Chapter 23 then details uh, the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, mother of Isaac, as well as the first piece of land which comes into the family. It is interesting that the land first enters into the family as a burial place, but as such, Sarah is buried near Mamre, the place where she first found out she would give birth to Isaac, her son in whom she had much laughter and rejoicing. So it's, uh, it's bittersweet. Um, I had one application point, so this will actually be a shorter sermon, and then everyone can get to eating. I know you're all excited. Um, all right, so within today's text, we see two motifs that have been found throughout Genesis. The first is death. And the second deals with promise. When it comes to death and loss, we see it in Sarah, the first matriarch who dies after all this time, 127 years. When it comes to promise fulfillment, we see it with Abraham finally owning land in Canaan. It is interesting to consider it. Death. We haven't seen it for many chapters in Genesis. Prior to this chapter, however, we remember the genealogies and how each one dealt with the reality of death. Genesis always reminds us of the reality of death, almost as if it is purposefully bringing us back to the great problem which humanity faces, the problem of the curse, the problem that we will all return to the dust from which we came. Genesis doesn't pass on the punch. Just when we think that everything is going well, it brings us back to the reality of who we are in our brokenness, as well as the reality of what we deserve, which is the judgment of death. Sarah is just a reminder of it again. Despite the promises given to Abraham and Sarah, and the reality is that they too will return to the earth, and Sarah is the first of them to return. Yet it is interesting to consider the reality of it. Yes, Sarah does pass away. She does die. There's a great amount of grief and sorrow from Abraham. And though not mentioned Isaac as well. Indeed, the darkness is upon them in their grief and their mourning over Sarah whom they greatly loved. But it is also through this loss that something interesting happens. And that is the first portion of land which comes into the family line is purchased. For the first time, Abraham will actually own some of the land of Canaan, some of the promised land. Indeed, it is because of this death that the first portion of land becomes theirs. What does this tell us? Perhaps of the reality of our own situations. Is it possible that we are learning something more from this text that through darkness sometimes can, um, can come, can begin to take place? Is it possible that though darkness should occur in our lives, it doesn't negate the promises which are given to us? That even if we should suffer, even if we should moan and groan in the sorrows of life, that the sorrow can't overcome the promises of God? Is it possible we are to remember our God is good and his promises are sure. Indeed, this very thing is oft repeated in the scripture. 
When we consider the descendants of Abraham and how they were enslaved in Egypt, it is only after their enslavement, their sorrow, that they can come out on the other side and come to the land which promised as an inheritance to Abraham from the Lord. When we think much farther ahead from here, when we consider the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, when we consider how much hope there is at his coming, Soon we will be remembering this very thing during Christmas. It's that time of year when we consider the star, the shepherds, the angel chorus, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Yet how does it end? It ends very much like what we find in Genesis. The promises, so many promises fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Just like Abraham and Sarah who received the promise of Isaac. And now that he is here, it's almost as if the darkness come with the death of Sarah. Is it any different with Jesus? We read his words. We hear his truth. That he is the truth. Yet in the end, it leads to the darkest day of human history. When the world itself quaked, the light itself was dimmed, and the life which brought us so much light into our world was extinguished. How the disciples mourned. How they lost hope. Yet this story is different. For this story had a similar promise fulfillment that we find in the death of Sarah. Though through mourning Abraham first received the portion of the land which was given to him by God. So through the death of Jesus an older promise is brought forth and that is life from death. Yet what happened after he was raised? Consider the disciples. They rejoice. Yet they also believed something, and that was within their lifetime, the return of Christ would come. 2,000 years later, we are in the same boat as the disciples. We too wait for the promise to be fulfilled in full, when death itself will be defeated. Indeed, we see it again, the same thing over and over, after darkness, light, after pain, joy, even in sorrow, blessing, even in death, Promises fulfilled. So it is we are in the same boat as Abraham and Sarah. We too have been given a promise. The promise is that those who have faith in Christ will receive the internal inheritance of the kingdom of God. Where none will ever experience sorrow, pain, misery, or the pangs of sin which is death. But as it is, we're still waiting. We've been given part of the blessing. Part of of the promise. We have received Christ and we have received his spirit. Yet like Abraham, we live in a time of mourning when death is still here. Thus like Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, we too mourn, but like them we have also received the beginning, the first fruits of the promise about this life. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. It's not just that we receive salvation from eternal death. What is more is that we begin to experience the blessing and the sanctification of Christ here and now. That through him we are already called sons and daughters of God Most High. That our cognitive abilities, our abilities to think, our minds begin to be healed so that we can begin to learn about our God here and now. That our hearts, our affections are led back to our God. To find joy and fulfillment in following after him with all that we are. Something unthinkable previously is now a reality. Now, not just later. No, now we have already begun to experience it. 
Because of this, we do not lose hope in the night. Because of this, when the darkness comes around us and closes in, we hold our heads high, we sing a song of praise, we rejoice, for we know that out of darkness has come the incredible light of Christ. What have we to fear? What can take away our hope? The promises are are being fulfilled every day. And though the devil and sin and sorrow try to steal us away from the promises and the hope, we rest assured on the promise and the security of our loving Savior. For he walked the path and he is strong enough to carry us still. So when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, when we see mourning and the truth of who we are, let us not forget what God has already accomplished and let's cling to him knowing that he is the one by whom we have life and life abundantly. Let us never lose hope in our suffering and our own tears that God is incapable of bringing out his blessing, for darkness cannot stop the light. If you should cry, uh, should cry tears, then cry. If you should mourn, then mourn. If you should have sorrow, have sorrow. In the midst of it, feel it, know it, and remember our Savior suffered as well, and remember that he was raised into eternal glory. This is all fleeting. It is passing. But Christ, he is permanent forever, never ending. Our tears are not forever. And the promises of God far outweigh our tears. Whether we experience the promises now or in eternity. In him we have our hope, our trust. And in him we place our faith. Knowing our God and knowing that his promises are sure. Um, and again, I told you this would be shorter. <laughs> Uh, how do you deal with haggling? Am I right? Just kidding. Anyway, the gospel of Christ. Um, and that's where our hope rests. It rests in the fact that our God is a good God, that he has done something miraculous, that he has created beings in his own image first and foremost. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. The fact that you and I are created in the image of God and that we all have this ability to know him and that we can reason and we can love and we also have this divine aspect that is from God and it's a beautiful masterpiece that you are and that we are together. Um, And we rejoice over this. We rejoice over the fact that our God is so good and so creative and so wonderful and masterful in his work as to create a people like us. Um, But then the problem of sin occurs. And that's something that we deal with today when it comes to Sarah's death. Death happens to us all. The wages of sin is death. It takes but one sin to deserve death. And we all have this tendency to want to sin. From the time we're young until we grow older. And because of that, every sin that we commit causes us to become guilty before our God. And so then the problem rises that Genesis has been telling us over and over and over again. Death is going to occur. How do we fix it? How is it possible for us to overcome death? How is it possible for us to get back to a place with God where death doesn't happen? And you know, Abraham, he's not the best example when it comes to living. (laughs) He's made a lot of mistakes. Things that we're like, why would you do that? But there's one thing he does remind us of that is most important. And that is that if we are to be justified before God, it requires faith. And so God, 
makes a way through faith. That it isn't just what you and I do, and while we are to follow after Christ, and we are to follow and live, and live in repentance, and, and, and to turn from our sinful ways, the truth is what saves us is faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith in the person who created the stars of heaven. That through his life, death, and resurrection, we are made right with God. That it is his righteousness that is bestowed upon each of us. And when we place our faith in Christ, we begin to see the promise. When we place our faith in Christ, the first fruits of that promise begin immediately. And that is that God is our God. And that through this faith, we can turn toward him. And like the story we read about the prodigal son with the children, our God has his arms arms wide open and he's looking out. And he's ready. And you know what? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because he could come with us with a sword. (laughs) Our God could just as easily have said, they sinned, they're done. But instead, he enacted a plan of salvation. A plan so marvelous in its making, so masterful in its stroke. It's like a chess player. And he just knew all the pieces and he knew all the places and he knew exactly where it needed to be to win. That even with a people like us, with our our ability to turn away from him and to make our choices away from him and to live away from him, he still, throughout the course of human history, made a way for his son to come at the perfect time to die at the perfect time, to be raised again at the perfect time. Only a God who is masterful could do such a thing. And we get to experience it. And so just like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, we receive the blessings, some of the blessings here and now. But like Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, we're going to die before the whole thing comes. More than likely anyway. Unless Christ should come tomorrow or today. So as such, we have hope. Because if we do die today, if we do pass today, we still have the promise. And no matter what may happen, today is just the beginning. And in Christ, tomorrow is forever in him. Let us hold on to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for reminding us of the realities of death. And that death looms over us as a race because of our sin. And yet, though this is the case, though it looms so greatly over us, we know that if we are in your son, Jesus Christ we will be saved even from death. And that you will raise us back up. 
and that we will have life abundantly. And so, Lord, as we learn about the patriarchs, as we learn about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and as we learn about Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, we ask, Lord, that we would remember that they too received the blessings in part, and that they were looking forward to the receiving the whole of the blessing, the whole of the land, the whole of the generations. Yet they still passed away before they got to see it. So Lord, give us faith like they had to keep going. Give us faith to recognize that even if we should not receive all the blessings today, that we would have the strength to keep going, knowing that the blessings will come. That the promises that you've given to us, all of us through faith, will be sure. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do and all of who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.